So tonight will be the conclusion of the series on the paramis. And actually, when I think of that, I almost feel a sense of loss. <laughs> it's been a series that I have just loved. I mean, these are such wonderful qualities of heart and mind. And, you know, it's somehow made my life richer doing this series. But tonight, I'll first be speaking about metta, or loving-kindness. And for those of you who are familiar with lists, you probably already realize that I've done these last two out of sequence, that um, the paramis are usually done in a specific order, and loving-kindness would come before equanimity. However, the venerable Aryanyani only recently had given a talk on loving-kindness, so I would, thought I would wait a couple of weeks. But, uh, and tonight it won't be a full talk since many of you have heard about this quality recently. But even still, you know, it's, I think it's one of those qualities that we can never say too much about because it is such an essential quality to embody in our lives if we really hold deeply to this aspiration to awaken. And if we look at some of the qualities of metta that will help us to understand my giving importance to it, and you know, probably most of us have heard many talks on loving-kindness because it is of such value. Metta holds within it the quality of friendship. It's where we really learn to have a friendly relationship both with ourselves, becoming a friend to ourselves, becoming a friend to whatever experiences we may have in life, and learning how to be inclusive and friendly to the world at large. Metta also has the quality of gentleness. In fact, it's also many times related or portrayed in the way, the description of you know, a gentle rain that falls on everything. You know, it doesn't discriminate. It just gently falls. And this is a quality of metta or loving kindness, that it's not discriminating. It's not picking and choosing. It can embrace everything. It's that all-inclusive. But it also has that texture of gentleness. It's not forceful. It's not demanding. It's a tenderness of heart. It's also a benevolence of heart. It's a great generosity of heart where we can allow ourselves to care deeply for the welfare of ourselves and others. Through the formal practice of metta, or loving-kindness, we work to become all-inclusive as to who we embrace in our hearts. Some of us may be from the bare-bones school of practice and may resonate uh, 
with metta or loving kindness in the way in which it's spoken of in the Abhidhamma, where metta is described simply as being non-aversion. Non-aversion, a relationship of non-aversion to our experience or to ourselves, to other beings. No, it doesn't always sound like such a big deal to say it in that way. And yet, if we look at what the effect of non-aversion could be in our lives, we might get a sense of how profound it can be. You know, when you notice in a day how many times there's judgment, there's aversion, there's that distancing, that pulling away, that reactivity. And when non-aversion is present, it would look very different. You know, it's where we have that capacity to hold, to stay in balance, to be receptive to all different situations, all different types of people. Metta really helps us to learn to open to diversity. You know, where we aren't only opening to people or events that are the way we like it. Because metta goes, it goes deeper than our preferences, much deeper than our preferences. Metta also means, you know, when we relate to it in the way of non-aversion, that we aren't continually throwing people out of our hearts. There's room for everyone, every being all forms of life. Metta is about turning our minds towards goodness, towards inherent goodness. You know, with other beings, we will continually turn our minds towards that which we can appreciate about them. sometimes in ourselves, needing to look to see that which we can appreciate about ourselves. It is a practice that helps us to discover wise relationship where we can have this quality of inclusion, where we can learn to love without attachment. this can be a basis for wisely relating to those around us. We find when we do metta practice, it will often be a healing practice. It will help us to touch into the places of separation, painful memories that we have held from the past, division that we create between ourselves and others. As when, when we do metta as a practice, it often leads to deep healing of wounds from the past. And it helps to free us from this illusion of separation, where we're continually holding ourselves separate in relationship to the rest of the world. 
So metta becomes a essential, valuable part of our practice. And it's whether we are spending time doing intensive metta, which some of you have done periods of, may still be doing, uh, where we really draw out this quality of loving kindness. We aim our hearts towards this quality. Um, Or it may be simply that we become more aware of this quality as we do Vipassana meditation, as we learn to be with our experience just as it is. Within this, there is a quality of loving-kindness, of acceptance, of gentleness, tenderness. It can at times be helpful to do it as a separate practice to really learn the texture of this mind state, to become very familiar with its qualities and how we benefit from it. I know when I first started doing Vipassana practice, I was not so much interested in metta. You know, I thought metta was kind of a wussy practice. And, you know, I was out to be liberated, to be free. And, you know, it, it didn't really hold a place um, in my practice other than, you know, occasionally it was all right to do a little bit of it, um, you know, to wish well for people for a little bit. But there really wasn't a depth of understanding of what that practice was about. And then I started to see it more as a complementary practice at one point when I was in Burma practicing with Chamye Seyada, and things got really difficult the mind became really tight and contracted. And in fact, there was a lot of judgment happening in the mind at that time. Um, And when I reported my experience to Chomye Sayada, he told me that I should do metta practice. And then he said very strongly, and you must be successful. When he said that, I realized I was probably quite close to an edge. <laughs> there was something that needed to be softened, um, something you know that somehow this quality would really help to bring me back into balance. And so, you know, at first I started doing the metta practice, and um, it was not metta, <laughs> or it didn't feel like metta. You know, the words, may I be happy, <laughs> wasn't really em- embodying <laughs> that quality. But as I stayed steady with the offering of metta to my, first myself and then to others, uh, there came a softening, there came much more balance, and there actually came a place where many of the people that I had been harshly judging, I could hold in my heart. Um, you know, and it didn't mean that I approved of what I saw happening, but it meant that I could drop down to this place of coming in contact with this essential goodness, where I could connect through you know, how each of us has this desire to be happy. Every living being has this. And yes, we get confused about what happens what will bring happiness. And out of that confusion, we do harmful things, we do stupid things. Um, But essentially, 
we all have this deep-rooted urge to be happy. And it's actually in itself a wholesome urge. And so the metta practice helped me to drop into holding others in my heart, and it helped me to soften to my own experience, to become much more accepting of it. The importance of metta is expressed in um, a teaching that was given by Ajahn Buddhadasa, And for anyone who's ever heard me talk about metta or many other topics, you've probably heard this teaching before. But I never tire of it because it just points towards both the quality of metta and its importance and um, an aspect of how we can hold practice. So Ajahn Buddhadasa was once asked how Westerners who begin spiritual life with deep inner wounds pain and self-hatred can best approach practice. And he replied with two suggestions. First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of metta. And then they should be taken out in nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. And they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place amidst all things. This is so much to me about the essence of practice, why we practice, to find our proper place amidst all things. And in doing the way to doing that is to really call forth this quality of loving-kindness, so that the practice of awakening is done, enveloped by the principles of loving-kindness. It's not harsh. It's gentle. It's tender. It's all-inclusive. And this in itself brings about harmony. Sometimes in speaking about loving-kindness, I realize that it can you know, sound like a very idealistic uh, state of mind. You know, we can hear descriptions of metta as being unconditional love, boundless, vast, non-discriminating. And you know, it can seem like, wow, that would be nice, but you know, I don't really know what its relevance in my life is. You know, I'm just plodding along, doing the best that I can, and I'm not quite sure how that could possibly relate. And yet, it may be that we are experiencing metta, but in very simple ways, simple ways that do have the qualities of friendship, gentleness, tenderness. Um, we can find metta present in our practice in very quiet ways, quiet moments. It could be where we are diligently just coming back to our object of meditation over and over again. Without expectation, we just keep coming back. And with this, we're doing it in a kind way, a friendly way. It's not, oh, you idiot, you got lost again. It's just seeing the mind is lost 
and coming back. Within that very movement, this quality of metta can be present. We find metta when we are not continually judging others, whether they're worthy of our love or not. You know, where we can practice metta at times in a very free-flowing way to everyone who might cross our path, whether it be another human being, whether it be insects that at times bite us, whether it be, uh, you know, animals out in the woods. You know, that, that there's this non-judgmental aspect. And then in, in, in when we find these uh, times where there's just a simplicity of being able to wish well for another being, that there can come a great peace and contentment from this. We can find metta is present at times when we simply soften to our knee pain or soften to uh, states of anger, aversion, judgment, frustration. We can find metta in moments where we are fully present. Now, whether it's full presence in practice or whether it's listening to another person and practicing full presence. I love a line from Sharon Salzberg's book on loving-kindness, where she says, to love someone is to be totally present for them. Now that's a simplicity of love. It doesn't have a big sign saying, I'm here for you. We're just fully present, listening, available, bearing witness to another being's experience. The power of simply being present for someone can be uh, very powerful. I experienced this one time when I met His Holiness the Dalai Lama. I was in McLeod Ganj at this time and had heard that he would be giving a public audience What happens with these public audiences is that everyone lines up to file past him and to shake his hand. And you know, on that particular day, there was over a thousand people. Um, It was a wonderful festive occasion, everyone standing around waiting and then, you know, getting in a long file and filing past him. But, uh, you know, as I was waiting to go past him, I was feeling a little bit cynical, like, you know, this is, uh, this feels a bit weird, you know, then we're going to go up and feel really rigid, you know, well, hi, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, this wasn't quite sure about it. And yet I had heard about His Holiness that um, when he meets somebody, he greets them as if they are a long lost friend. And so when it actually came my turn, that was my experience. You know, and it was only a brief moment. And yet, in that moment, there was a meeting because his presence was so strong. I'd like to share also a quote by a woman named Joan Chittister. 
And I think this points towards what the possibility of taking quite a simple practice into our hearts and really applying it in our lives and how transformative that can be. She says, try saying this silently to everyone and everything you see for 30 days. I wish you happiness now and whatever will bring happiness to you in the future. If we set it to the sky, we would have to stop polluting. If we set it when we see ponds and lakes and streams, we would have to stop using them as garbage dumps and sewers. If we set it to small children, we would have to stop abusing them, even in the name of training. If we set it to people, we would have to stop stoking the fires of enmity around us. Beauty and human warmth would take root in us like a clear, hot June day we would change. Metta is often described as the welling up of love that a mother cow has when she first sees her newborn calf. It's a movement of the heart that is very strong very uncontrived. I experienced this on the last retreat with Tromnesera when I spent some time doing metta practice. There was at times this sense of metta simply welling up. And in my case, it went into spilling over. You know, it was just that moment when the heart was so deeply touched by caring. And in these moments, it's not that we're loving someone because of the way they are, but we're loving in a way that is not self-serving, not self-referencing, but is just this deep caring. We find that this often spontaneously happens with children, with animals. You know, something of the purity of these beings can quite naturally call forth this quality of metta. I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity or inclination, and I'm not wanting to set this in motion, but to uh, feed the birds around here. You know, these birds uh, between here and the retreat center have been fed for numerous years by people. And so, you know, if you have a few sunflower seeds in your hand and you stand out there with an open hand, often a bird will come and land on it. And I don't know, I I, I can't, well, I, I suspect if fear got in the way, you might not experience the metta in that moment. But it is, you know, has been for me just watching this tiny being come and, you know, have a moment where they are taken care of. You know, just just that sense of really wishing well for that being spontaneously arises. And, you know, so we do find that metta will at times really spontaneously arrive. And, you know, sometimes it's not at a premium. And that's why it's helpful to learn the practice of loving-kindness or to really learn to... Um, 
access this quality of loving-kindness. Metta has this very unconditional aspect to it, which this is what allows it to go deeper than our preferences, to go deeper than what we like. And through this, we find that metta is free of attachment and actually is quite a cooled out state which is quite different than the sentimentality which we often confuse as metta. Um, One way of seeing how uh, confused love can be is, is what, you know, if we think of love as being the person to whom we experience the strongest compassion towards, and then think of moving that feeling out to all beings, that would become totally exhausting, you know, and not sustainable. But because metta itself is free of attachment, is free of passion, is this cooled out state of caring deeply for others, we find that it is extendable. It is... uh, enduring. It's not so limiting. And loving without attachment is really where we give the best of ourselves. I've noticed in my own relationships when um, I see attachment come up and I take a moment to reflect on would I really want to stand in the way of another person's well-being by clinging to them? Would I not want them to realize the deepest truth, even if it meant that they couldn't be with me when I wanted them to be with me? You know, we get so caught in our relationships of wanting them to be a certain way, desiring that someone be near to us, And, you know, at times we even get so confused that we think that the the depth of our suffering around attachment proves how we love another. And yet, metta, loving-kindness, isn't tainted by this attachment. It is freely offered without wanting anything in return. Deepama, uh, a Bengali woman who was a teacher to many of the teachers at IMS, maybe some of you even met her. She was once asked how you can love and not attach at the same time. And she responded by saying, a simple example is that of water. Non-attachment means you flow on top of the water. You don't plunge into it. You stay afloat without going under. She was also asked how her basic understanding of life changed. 
and she said, my outlook has greatly changed. Before I was too attached to everything. I was possessive. I wanted things. But now it feels like I am floating, detached. I am here, but I don't want things. I don't want to possess anything. I'm living. That's all. That's enough. When we work with this quality of metta, we begin to see more clearly when it falls into attachment, when there are conditions to our love. So it becomes a very valuable practice as we uh, step out into the world, as we move into relationship. Metta is one of the beautiful states. Turning to it, we get reminded of our inherent beauty, the natural radiance of the heart. It's where we develop this friendly relationship with ourselves and with the world at large. We can use it as a support in the unfolding of wisdom. And metta at its deepest level is the realization of the truth of interconnectedness. And as we embody it, it takes us to a place where we actualize this in the way that we live our lives. Mother Teresa once said, Love is a fruit in season at all times and within reach of every hand. So finding ways that we can access metta, both through directly cultivating it and learning to meet all of our experiences with these qualities of friendship, gentleness, tenderness, kindness, and the great benevolence of heart. So I'd like to now turn the talk towards a wrapping up of all of these paramis. The paramis are an interesting list in that you know, they're called at times the requisites of enlightenment, uh, qualities that we need to perfect or to some degree call into being in order to awaken. They support awakening. And as being a parami, it's necessary uh, as a parami that they are really done for the welfare and benefit of others. And so because of this, when we hear 
uh, of paramis, we often think of them as being qualities that we will bring forth as we live in the relational world, you know, as we live in the world of doing, and sometimes don't see them so distinctively as the wisdom practice, what we do sitting on the cushion. And yet there can be a very direct link. The link is, uh, is evident when we look at the quality or the, the way in which we can come to practice, our motivation for practice, our aspiration for practice, when our aspiration for practice is based upon bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is, uh, on the relative level, doing this practice for the welfare and benefit of all beings. And so, you know, when we arrive on our cushions with this aspiration and infuse our practice with this aspiration, it really works very closely with the paramis. And when we sit on a silent retreat, we will many times be working with these qualities very directly. And I think it helps to open up the context of what we're doing because, you know, sometimes when we're sitting, um, you know, doing Vipassana meditation, it might be that we use uh, the factors of mindfulness, effort, and concentration as how we judge our practice. You know, is the mindfulness really quick, precise? Is the effort really steady? Um, Is the concentration strong? And there can be many times when those factors aren't so strong. And if we're just holding that limited framework of practice, we might judge ourselves to not be doing well. And yet, in many of those moments, if we look towards these qualities of the paramis, uh, it may be that we see that we really are working with these qualities, that we may be working with patience in any given moment. We may be working with determination. We may, you know, even though we're floundering in every other aspect, in those moments it may be that, um, you know, we're not harming other beings. There's a quality of virtue is actually there. So if we learn to, you know, at times recognize these paramis in our practice, it can help to strengthen faith and confidence in what we're doing. It helps to open up the context of what we're doing here. In doing something so simple as walking mindfully through the food line, we can find ourselves working with a number of the paramis. If we arrive at the lunch line at the same time as someone else, we might give way, and this can be an act of generosity. As we go through the lunch line, we might be practicing renunciation in accepting what is being offered, relinquishing our preferences. If there is reactivity, we can be working with this reactivity. And doing so, we help to um, cultivate equanimity. 
If we keep applying mindfulness to the changing experience as we walk through the lunch line, this is a wise application of energy. If the person in front of us is moving very slowly, or maybe they're pausing uh, to cut up bananas or oranges, uh, the fruit in the morning I know can get quite congested, it can be a moment when we practice patience. And resolve or determination can help us to go through all of these changes, holding this practice in the context of liberation. So I'd like to speak now a little bit about some of the specifics of each of the paramis and how we might experience them here on retreat. So the first being that of dana, generosity, the benevolence of heart. There can be quite obvious ways which we might practice generosity here, where you know it may be that we feel um, that we want to offer to the welfare of others through offering to the teachers, to the staff who supports us, or uh, to the facility itself we feel called to give, to, to freely offer and share um, something of our well-being with others. More recently, IMS has um, offered the meal dana, where we can help to take care of our fellow yogis, those around us. Um, <clears throat> through the practice of doing this, through the practice of cultivating this generosity, we might also learn the wisdom of letting go, the wisdom of non-attachment, feeling what happens as we offer this moment of relinquishment. But it's also said that the greatest gift is the gift of the Dhamma. And so as we practice we can hold our practice in the place of offering the Dhamma, where we're using this time to investigate deeply the truth of this mind-body experience, uncovering the truth in this moment. And so we infuse our practice from this place of generosity, wanting to offer to all beings the most that we can. Other, another simple act of generosity can be when we see a fellow meditator struggling in a place of pain and we simply hold them in our hearts, you know, without needing to console them in any way, without needing to pamper them in any way, but we just hold them in our hearts. We give our fellow yogis the gift of our presence, our dedication, our staying steady. The second of the paramis, virtue. 
just in being here, we are practicing virtue. As we, you know, have all chanted either the five precepts or the eight precepts, and living together as a community, living in a way where we try to practice non-harming, helping to create a world in which others feel safe, where others can experience the unfolding of their own hearts and minds. Even just by observing noble silence, we're practicing virtue. One of the greatest gifts of doing a retreat in relationship to virtue is that we really begin to see the importance of it. As we sit here and become hunted by actions we've done in the past, things that we regret, we wish we hadn't done, we feel bad about, if we can open to these feelings and then recommit to a life of non-harming, it's a great strengthening of this factor of virtue. I know it's really been, you know, when I first came to the practice, I don't even know if I paid attention when people talked about the precepts, talked about sila, ethical conduct. But as I practiced, I really did begin to understand this, how important it is, and how it does lay the foundation for the unfolding of our minds. That, you know, without this quality of virtue, the mind will be um, constantly agitated, disturbed. And yet, when we practice virtue, we, become to, we come to know the great joy of the virtuous heart. the third parami of renunciation. We work with this on different levels in being here. The outer, obvious level, that we've left our homes, family, friends, and we're living in a more simple environment, that we've had to let go of a lot to be here. Letting go of our preferences, not being a small part of that. Letting go of our preferences around food, temperature, Um, conditions. We don't have so much control sitting here. But we also work with inner renunciation, learning to let go of mind states that we become identified with, learning to let go of anger. And you know, sometimes we get deeply entangled in righteousness of anger, that feeling of being right. And we learn to renounce this. At times in our practice, we renounce states of calm. We let go. We learn to let go. We learn to renounce our fantasies, you know, which are sometimes very pleasurable, pleasing. And we learn to simply let go. We do this through paying attention to the changing flow of experience, not clinging or identifying in any way that fuels it. And if we continue on in the practice, we come to the greatest renunciation of all, 
the relinquishment of this identification with our experience in the way of belonging to us. We relinquish the great story of self. The fourth of the paramis, that of wisdom. In Vipassana meditation, we work very directly with this parami, learning to see things as they are, and doing this through a very careful observation of the body-mind process, through the application of the four foundations of mindfulness. You know, paying close attention to experiences of the body, paying close attention to the feeling tone of our experience, um, whether our experience be pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, paying attention to the mind, all of the different states of mind, and paying attention to all aspects of experience and the ways that they interrelate. And wisdom has a way of working really in tandem with uh, the other paramis. It, um, when we are cultivating all of the paramis, we will find that wisdom naturally arises. And yet wisdom needs to be present in order to really know what true generosity is. It needs to be present to know, to be that discerning uh, factor in virtue, knowing what is wholesome and what is unwholesome. It's needed to be able to clearly recognize any of the paramis. the fifth of the paramis being energy, effort. And so much of our practice here is about right effort. It's a very important factor and one that actually appears on the list many times. And as a parami, we use it um, in using right effort to help us to awaken for the benefit of all beings. And so we use right effort to help us to stay on the path, help us to recognize, help us to be able to use the totality of our energy to do so. Learning how we can meet our experience in any moment. You know, sometimes there's an abundance of energy And through right effort, right energy, we learn how to be lightly with that experience. Or sometimes we find that there's not much energy. And we learn how to meet our experiences in those moments. We learn how to meet our experience when um, our practice starts getting too tight or too loose. We learn how to apply right effort or energy. Through energy, 
we also learn about the courageous element that it uh, holds within it. You know, there's often, it's often spoken of as having a courageous heart is right effort. And so it helps us to have that willingness to persevere in difficult times. It's that heroicism of the heart. The sixth parami is that of patience. You know, and when we come and we sit on retreat, <coughs> excuse me, and all of our expectations get dashed, then we learn the humility of patience. We learn to stay steady as things fall apart. We learn to stay in the present. We learn a radical acceptance in being with that which is difficult. And we learn that we can't push through these difficulties, that the unfolding of our hearts has its own timing. And we learn to trust in this unfolding, learning to be friendly to these difficulties and not to cringe each time they reappear. We learn to put our practice in a framework where everything is not always instantly resolvable. There's not always instant fulfillment. And this opens our practice up to another frame which is very broad, very accepting, very vast, and actually takes our practice into quite a timelessness. And yet, at the same time, we are able to work very much with the experience in this moment. The next of the paramis, truthfulness. We learn the power of being dishonest, and the power of being truthful as we sit. It becomes very clear. The pain of being dishonest and the freedom of honesty. We can practice truthfulness with right speech on retreat, even though it's very limited in our interviews, saying that which seems both true, useful, appropriate, noticing how at times we want to color our experience. And we work with honesty just in simply reflecting our experience just as it is. Sometimes we don't like our experience. Trungpa Rinpoche once said, practice is insult after insult. And sometimes it feels like that. But with truthfulness, we just learn to see it, to know it, and to have that uh, capacity to be upright and honest.
when this parami is strengthened, it actually becomes a refuge, the refuge of truth, which is also the refuge of the Dhamma. The next being that of resolve. Over long periods of time, watching so many changes in our experience, you know, times when this practice is smooth and effortless, times when it's a grind, challenging. And what we find is that we simply sit and we walk, and we sit and we walk, and we turn up and we simply do the best that we can. And we don't waver in our motivation for practice. It doesn't mean that we aren't deeply challenged by the difficulties, but we know there's a job, a task at hand, and we simply do the best that we can and stay steady. As we're sitting here, we practice loving kindness, both through the formal practice and through bringing this quality of metta to our experience when we meet it with the friendliness, tenderness, gentleness that I spoke about. Sitting here on retreat, we really learn to be a friend to ourselves. I remember once uh, on a difficult, challenging retreat, I went through a period where you know, I had this image of being on a sailboat on a very stormy sea and being alone at sea. And there wasn't a moment where I could, you know, stop, take a breath, rest, relax. It was very challenging and having to keep moving, having to keep applying that right effort, mindfulness being, you know, applying all of these qualities of heart and mind. And then there came a point where the sea started to calm a bit. Things became quieter. And at that moment, I had the thought come into my mind, you know, you're a good friend to have. And that's what we develop as we sit here practicing and staying steady in our practice. We really become a friend to ourselves. And the last of the paramis, equanimity. And this is where we learn about the reactivity of the mind by actually facing the reactivity as it arises in our practice, working, bringing mindfulness to this experience, which helps to bring about a coolness, a balance to the mind, where we can learn to be open to our experience no matter what is happening. There's a great balance and spaciousness in the mind. We find that all of these paramis work together. And, you know, at many times it's hard to know where one begins and the next one takes off. I mean, they work so closely. And just as an example of that, you know, in a moment of generosity, we're also practicing loving kindness, caring about the welfare of others. We're practicing virtue through a moment of um, acts of non-harming. We're practicing renunciation through relinquishment of letting go of anger and aversion. Um, We're practicing effort through the act of carrying out uh, this act of generosity. 
And wisdom is present when we give knowing of the impermanence of the giver, the receiver, and of the gift itself. And equanimity is present when we're able to give without any expectation of receiving anything in return. So, you know, not to spend a lot of time trying to figure out which parami this might be, but to know that when we practice one, it really leads us into the practicing of the others. To have patience as we practice these paramis, that it's a gradual process. I'd like to share a teaching from Ajahn Shah, and he was speaking about the fruits of practice. Our spiritual perfections or paramis are not complete. It's like the fruit on a tree. You can't force it to be sweet. It's still unripe. The reason that it's small and sour is because it hasn't finished growing yet. You can't force it to be bigger, to be sweeter, to be riper. You have to let it ripen according to its nature. As time passes, the fruits will grow and ripen and become sweet by themselves. In the same way, as time passes, people reach spiritual maturity. With such an attitude, you can be at ease. But if you are impatient and dissatisfied, if you keep asking, why isn't this mango sweet yet? Why is it still sour? Then what can be done? It's sour because it's not ripe. That's the nature of the fruit. Likewise, as people's spiritual faculties mature, they develop faith. It's not something that one can force. If we can look at it in this way, then it will be okay. So we work with the cultivation of these paramis gradually, learning to call them forth, learning to recognize them. As we work with these, we are working with what the full potential of being a human being is, learning to call forth these qualities, learning to embody them. And we do so for the welfare and benefit of all beings everywhere. And in doing this, we offer the greatest gift that we can. So let's sit for a moment.
may we stand steady in our efforts to awaken, to call forth these requisites of enlightenment, awakening. And may all of our practice be done in the service of the welfare and liberation of all beings everywhere. So closing with the sharing of blessings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration.